Matthew chapter 22 is a, is a portion uh, where, where we see Jesus faced with, with one more series of questions before asking his own question. He's been questioned by the, the chief priests, the elders, the Sadducees now, but eventually he's going he's gonna to turn it around. He's going to start asking the question, the all-important question. Hear now God's word for his people. Starting in verse 23 of Matthew chapter 22, Jesus writes, The same day Sadducees came to Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Then again to the second, and again to the third, all the way down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. Now, in the resurrection, which one of the seven will be his husband? Of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, saying, You are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Skip now down to verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks indeed. Uh, don't know how much you're into superheroes or, or that whole thing, uh, but you've sort of been inundated with it, maybe even against your will. Uh, with all this Marvel happening, uh, but in the Superman world, in the Superman series, in the comics, in the movies, in the TV shows, it doesn't matter where, there's always a problem that arises with Superman. At first, everyone loves him. I mean, who doesn't love the idea of basically an all-powerful being, right? He can save us. He can do the things that we can. He can look out for the weak and the poor. This is great. But there's always something that arises. There's always a, a problem that arises. The, the first is, you know, we don't, we don't know who he's fighting for. Superman isn't human. How, how will he know? How will we know that he won't turn against us? He could do whatever he wants and nobody can stop him. We can't place our hopes in Superman. Another objection is that he won't be around forever. Right? It's great that Superman can do all these things now, but 
If we get too dependent on him, we're not going to know how to do things for ourselves. We're not going to know how to defend ourselves, how to protect ourselves. We can't place our hopes in Superman. I know that's a silly story about a silly superhero, but the question rings true. What are you placing your hope in? Is it something that will last forever? Is it something that has made a promise to you to be faithful? What is it that you believe in? What is it you don't believe in? What are you placing your hopes in? This morning, brothers and sisters, we're going to see that God's word, Jesus himself, calls his followers to submit your beliefs to God's word. Submit your disbeliefs to God's power. And finally, submit your hopes to God's son. So, the Sadducees come to Jesus with, with, a, with a question to sort of trip them up, right? But in, in order to understand it, we need some, we need some background. You see, the, the Sadducees were part of the, the religious elite. They didn't just know Scripture. They knew Scripture. And, and more than that, they were in the financial upper class too. So you've got people with lots of knowledge, lots of power, lots of influence, lots of money. Pretty special people, especially in their own eyes. And, and one of the distinctives, one of the things that's often said is, oh, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. But it's more than that. The Sadducees didn't believe in any authority other than the words of Moses, meaning the first five books of the Bible. And because in their minds Moses doesn't speak of resurrection, that's why they don't believe in resurrection. Let's not put the, the chicken before the egg. Is that, yeah. Let's not put the cart before the horse. They don't believe in, any, in the scriptures that you and I believe in. Therefore, they don't believe in resurrection. So to show that, they come up with a ridiculous situation, starting in verse 24. They say, teacher, notice already the false respect, the false sense of humility. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. This is actually part of the law that you can read in Deuteronomy 25. The idea was, number one, to make sure that the most vulnerable of their population, a widow, was not left defenseless and unable to care for herself. But a, a secondary part of that is, if you don't believe in a resurrection, how will you live on? Through your children, through your progeny. And so they were, try, they were emphasizing this passage to show that the only way you can live on is through your children. They bear your name, they bear your likeness, they bear your image in the same way that you bear the image of God. But in the minds of the Sadducees, if they follow this to its logical extreme, then you can't possibly believe in a resurrection. That's why we see in verse 25, they're trying to make a fool out of Jesus. They come up with this ridiculous situation. Okay, imagine there are seven brothers, and the first one's married, but he dies. And he's not going to have any children, so the wife gets married to his brother. But then he dies again, and she gets married to the second brother, and then to the third, and then the fourth, and then the fifth, and then the sixth, and then the seventh. That's a lot of wedding receptions, right? 
So this is the situation, right? Obviously, it's not a real one, but it's meant to show you how much of a fool Jesus is for believing in resurrection, right? So Jesus, in their minds, they've got Jesus trapped, but Jesus responds in verse 29. You are wrong. He doesn't even answer their question. He just says, you're wrong. Your your whole way of thinking is wrong because of two reasons, which we'll take in turn. Because number one, you do not know the scriptures. And number two, you do not really know the power of God. That's why we read in verse 31, Jesus explaining why they don't know the scriptures. Because in their minds, they've got the first five books of the Bible. They've got the books of Moses memorized. But God responds, Jesus responds with this. Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. Jesus didn't say I was or I used to be. He says I am. That means they are alive and that means that there is indeed a resurrection of the dead. But that's not even the point. Of course there's a resurrection from the dead. Anyone who reads scripture seriously knows that. The point is you are not submitting your beliefs The Sadducees are not submitting their beliefs to God's word. They've read scripture. They've heard it. Maybe they've even listened to the latest and greatest podcasts on scripture. See, that's a joke because podcasts don't... Okay. Uh, It's it's fine. Uh, First service, got it. Uh, They've they've read it. They know scripture. They have it memorized, Right? They, they probably even have certain favorite Bible verses hanging up on their walls, right? But they don't really know Scripture. And so Jesus points that out. It, it's kind of like Tom Sawyer, if you've ever read the, the Tom Sawyer series. Uh, Tom Sawyer has witnessed engagement. He knows what it means when a woman and a man get engaged, Right? Well, early on in his, in his adventures, uh, we read that Tom Sawyer falls in love with this girl named Becky. And so as they're developing in their relationship, Becky asks him, hey, what, what's this engagement thing? What's that all about? Well, Tom, being the experienced young man that he is, he knows all about engagement. He's seen people be engaged. He's heard about engagement. He's maybe even read about it. And so he explains to her with full confidence, listen, Becky, all you got to do is tell each other, I love you, and then kiss. And then you're engaged. Some of you are engaged right now without even knowing it, apparently. Right? Does Tom know what it means to be engaged? Of course not. Of course not. So the question for you, Christian, is not, do you read the scriptures? The question isn't even, do you memorize Scripture? The question is, do you know Scripture and do you submit to what it says? Do you know God's Word and submit your beliefs to God's Word? When we parent our children, do we first run to the latest and greatest parenting book and listen to all the greatest bloggers and then go to Scripture to confirm what we already know? Do we spend money on everything that we want because it brings us temporary pleasure and then go to the Bible and say, oh, look, it says it right there. The Lord will provide. We're good. 
No need for a budget. No need for wise stewarding of our finances. The Lord will provide, right? Do we start with our own systems of belief and then go to God's word to check our math? God loves me no matter what lifestyle I choose. I can sin as often as I want. And God loves me. Look, it says right there, God is love. And it also says, don't judge me. So stop looking at me like that. Christians, we, we cannot submit God's word to what we already believe. We cannot submit God's word to what we already believe. We must submit what we believe to God's word. When there is a conflict between what we believe and what God says, God must win in the hearts of believers. Amen? But the good news of the gospel, your hope this morning is not in your submission to God's law. Your hope is not in how faithfully you have submitted your beliefs to God's word. Jesus is not saying, once you properly believe the scriptures, once you fully understand the doctrine of justification, then I will love you. That's not at all the hope of the gospel. In fact, according to Romans chapter 5, it's while you were enemies, while, while you were in contradiction to God's word, while you were in rebellion to God's word, it's at that moment that you were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Jesus Christ. That is the love of your Savior. That is what allows you to say in all circumstances, it is well with my soul. Because you are forgiven and loved if you have trusted your life to this Savior. So rather, we do not obey, we do not submit in order to be loved, but rather because we are loved, we submit. In Christ, in him, Jesus is showing us how God's word brings life. He, Jesus perfectly knew. Jesus perfectly obeyed the scriptures, not so that you wouldn't have to, but so that you would be enabled to. That's the good news of the gospel. Amen? We're in agreement. That's good. And it is only through his spirit, which we have been given, that we can actually know the scriptures. That's the good news. But there's another component to building our hope. When at the end of the day, when you get to the end of your life and you say, what have I built my life upon? It's more than, it's more than just reading the scriptures and knowing the scriptures. It's, it's believing the scriptures. And we come to truly believe in the scriptures when we come to truly believe in the power of God. And so when we read scripture and we know it or even acknowledge and maybe even agree with it, but we don't really live our lives according to it, when we don't really believe, that's the moment where you must submit your disbeliefs to God's power. In verse 29, we are told that the Sadducees are wrong. Not just because they don't know the scriptures, but because they don't know the power of God. And God says, you want to know how much power I have? Verse 32, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, of the living. He is God. God can say he is the God of these men because he has raised them from the dead. They are living and alive right now. So the question for you is, if what we sang this morning is true, if Christ our Savior and our Redeemer is alive, if he can raise people from the dead, then what is there in your life that God does not have power over? 
If God can raise people from the dead, what is there in your life that God does not have the power to do? We believe what Scripture says. We believe that God's Word contains all that we need for life. We believe that God created the world simply by breathing it into existence. We believe, we rejoice in the fact that one day Jesus will raise us from the dead, and yet we are creatures of contradiction. Because we believe that, but if you're anything like me, we also, we also say things like, well, working on this marriage isn't worth it. It's too far gone. What's the point in talking to my parents? They'll never understand. What's the point in trying to parent my, my child? They're too far gone. There's no use in praying for this person. They'll never believe in Jesus. They're just too sinful, too evil, too far gone. Christians, what, what I want you to hear this morning is that if there is a disconnect between what you say you believe and what you do, then you do not actually believe it. If there is a tension between what you say you believe and what you actually do, then you might not actually believe it. If the mechanic says to you, this thing is not safe to drive, the person who believes him won't just agree with him, won't just nod along, he won't get in the car. He won't drive the car home, but too often we, we say we believe the mechanic, but we drive it home anyway because we know more than the mechanic about cars, don't we? Christian, if we say like the Sadducees that we believe God's word, then we must believe what he says in it because that's what faith is. Faith is not simply having Faith. Faith is not simply believing in general. Faith is believing in what God has promised in his word. And what God has promised in his word, we read in many places, such as Romans chapter 1, where we read that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone. Who believes. And so if we believe that, wouldn't our prayer life be a little bit different? Wouldn't the way that we address our, our sins, our, our, our sins that seem to keep coming back over and over again, wouldn't we address those differently, with greater fervor, with greater confidence, if we really believed that the gospel is the power of God? Wouldn't we disciple our, our children wouldn't we share the gospel differently with our neighbor if we really believed that the gospel is the power of God? We believe these things, but when we don't believe, we are enabled in Christ to cry out like we read in Mark chapter 9, where the father of this child says to Jesus our Savior, I believe and yet help my unbelief. I am not here accusing you of not having enough faith because that is not your hope. We've said before, faith is believing in what God has promised. And some of you are, are, are maybe objecting right now because this is what pops into my head when I hear things like this. I do believe. I believe in what I'm supposed to believe. I, I know God has, God has the power to do these things. But God has not promised many of the things that I pray for. 
In other words, I know he can, but will he? I know he can, but I don't know that he will. I know he can save my child who has strayed from the faith. I know he can, but I'm not promised he will. I know he can save my marriage, but I'm not promised he will. I know he can redeem my heart and help me to overcome the sin that keeps coming back over and over again, but I am not promised that that he will. What do I do, pastor? You go back to his word and you go to the things that he has promised. I was reminded recently of this beautiful promise in Isaiah chapter 25. In Isaiah chapter 25, uh, the Lord says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow of aged wine, well-refined. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. No more pain. No more tears, no more death. That is what you can depend on. But the power of God is not simply reserved for the future. Because the Lord is not saving his people from the world. He does not tell you, Christian, just endure. Just grit your teeth until the end and then you'll get to experience heaven. That's a measly hope. Instead, it's this world, it's this mountain in which we will feast. Here is where I will show you my goodness and my power and my faithfulness and my kindness. And I will fulfill my promises to all my people. Because as this passage shows, God does not simply remove you from this world. He restores the world that you are already in. That's the power of God. Amen? In light of that, In light of depending on the promises that God has made to his people, it is my absolute pleasure to remind you of two more passages of scripture. The first is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As we sang this morning, Christ is risen. And Paul makes, Paul spends a lot of time. I mean, we're on verse 58. Paul spends a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 15, convincing the Corinthians of the power of the resurrection. And because of all those things, because Christ is risen, because he is the Lord of the living and not the dead, you, brothers and sisters, can be steadfast. You can be immovable like a mountain. You can be, oh, don't take it away. Don't do that. You can be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Your prayers, your evangelism, your marriage counseling, your endeavors for holiness in the Lord, none of it is in vain. God will not simply redeem you and save your soul. He will will redeem your broken years. He will take all those broken prayers, those, those prayers that you made on your knees with tears in your eyes, and he will use them. He will show you one day how it was all for his grand purpose and for the glory of his name. That is your hope. And even now as we wait, I told you there were two passages, two promises. 
even now, as we continue to work awaiting the restoration of this world, God promises that he will turn your waiting into worship. Your waiting will turn into worship because the very next verse in that passage in Isaiah is this. It will be said on that great day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. And what did the people that waited for him do? Did they grumble because it wasn't worth the wait? No, brothers and sisters, they were glad and rejoiced in his salvation. That is what awaits you. That is the power of God. Amen. So, as you build your hope, as you consider what your life should be built around, it makes no sense to center it around fame, money, power, as the Sadducees had done. Rather, as you submit your beliefs to God's word and you submit your disbeliefs to God's power, you must also submit all of your hopes, all of your hopes to God's son. Jesus, up to this point, has been questioned extensively. We've seen the the chief priests and the elders, the disciples, the Herodians, and now even the Sadducees have a crack at trying to confound Jesus. But each one fails to understand who he really is. And so now in verse 41, Jesus starts asking the questions. He asks the question in which all other questions are surrounded. And now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Not about having seven spouses in heaven, not about who to pay taxes to, but the question to answer all other questions. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. What do you think, TCPC? How'd they do? 100%, right? If this is a test... If they're in seminary and, they, and this is a test and they write down Jesus is the son of David, boom, check mark, smiley face, maybe even a sticker. Nice work. That, that's absolutely correct. But it's not enough. And that's why Jesus has a follow-up question. Okay, you technically got the answer correct. But how is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord if he is the son of David, saying... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Short answer. He's not just his son. He's great David's greater son. As we so often sing, as my son loves to sing. Great David's greater son. We hail to the Lord's anointed. They expected the Messiah, David's son, to be a special human being. Many expected a a great military leader who would conquer Rome and deliver them from the oppression of the people. Of course, we would never do that. We don't build our hope around the fact that Jesus will destroy that other political party and show them just how wrong they were and how right we were. Do we? The religious groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they they expected something a little different. They expected a great prophet who would vindicate their specific religious beliefs and practices, their observance of the Sabbath, how they worshipped in great detail. 
how they gave a tenth of even their spices. That's how dedicated they were. They thought Jesus would come as a prophet and, and just rebuke all the people who were not giving a, a tenth of their spices. They thought one day the, the, the Messiah will come and he will show those other denominations, I mean uh, religious groups, that we were right and they were wrong. We would never do this, right? That's kind of like an exchange I got to witness um, a few years back. One resident of an apartment building in, in which we were living, he called, uh, he was living on the second floor, and he called the cops on a resident right below him because the resident below him was complaining to the management of the noise upstairs. So the guy upstairs thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to call the cops and tell, through the cops, tell this downstairs neighbor to just leave me alone. Let me live in peace. I'm not making that much noise. He thought that when he called the cops, the cops would be on his side, that they would go downstairs and tell those people how wrong they were. But that's not why the police exist. They're not there to serve our specific agendas. They are there to uphold the law. Long story short, when the cops came upstairs, they smelled drugs and promptly arrested the man. <laughs> if I didn't know any better, that would be karma, but we know better. Jesus did not come to serve our agendas, Christian. No matter how sincerely we may hold to them, Jesus does not come to serve our agendas. We do not pray, my kingdom come with a little splash of your kingdom. We pray, as you see in your worship guides, as you will see in a moment on the screens, your kingdom come. But rather than being disappointed, Christian, I, I invite you to be encouraged. Because your hopes, your greatest hopes on your greatest day pale in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that God has prepared for his people. Amen? We read in our passage this morning, quoted from Psalm 110, we read in verse 44, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. All of our enemies, all of our real enemies, will be crushed by our mighty conqueror. What we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, is that if you are building your hope on Jesus, then all of the pain you suffer in this world is but a light, momentary affliction. Not in itself. Don't hear that the wrong way. Do not hear our gentle and loving Lord saying, get over it, because that's not what he's saying. He's saying that the worst atrocities you can face in this life, the worst examples of brokenness and pain and sin, pale, when you compare them to the eternal weight of glory that is awaiting God's people. We have to cling to that. We have to cling to that. Friends, if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is not just David's son, but great David's greater son, then we cannot simply have Jesus tag along in our life. We cannot simply have Jesus be a hobby that we pick up when we're interested and drop when we're not. Jesus can't be a multivitamin that we add to our already full diets. Jesus has to be the hope on which all other hopes are built upon. He has to be 
the solid rock. Now, if that sounds daunting, good. It means you're listening. But listen just a little while longer because the good news of the gospel is that great David's greater son came down from his throne because he knew you couldn't do all that he requires. He knew that you could not perfectly submit all your beliefs to God's word. He knew you would place your confidence in many things before Christ, knowing your failures, knowing the ugliest parts of your heart, knowing that your sins would mean your death. Jesus stepped in. He suffered and died on the cross so that you could have life. But if that's where the gospel starts and stops, then Jesus is little more than an inspirational story. If, if the story of the gospel is simply you failed, but Jesus succeeded, then Jesus is simply something we should aspire to. But rather, as we read in Colossians earlier this morning, once dead, we were made alive. We were given the ability to actually submit our beliefs, to actually submit our disbeliefs, and to actually submit our hopes to God's Son in Christ. That is our hope. So now, anyone who comes knocking for the payment of your sins needs to go to the cross. Because that's where the payment is. That's where they were paid. There is therefore now no condemnation for you, Christian. There is no one who can claim that you are still guilty. Including yourself. When Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation, he is including your own heart. Your own heart has no authority to condemn you for your sins because your sins have been paid for. Some of you think of yourselves as such great sinners that God wants nothing to do with you. It's almost as if God made a mistake in choosing you, right? Surely, God, you meant to save someone else, not me, because I'm such a failure. I so often fail to keep your word. I say this to you and to my own heart, with the utmost respect, please get over yourself. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. The gospel is about great David's greater son and the grace that he shows to his people. And you, you mere mortal, cannot outsin God's grace. Your sins are not so great that they are too much for the cross. Amen. Your hope cannot be built on your ability to keep God's command. Your hope cannot be built on your faithfulness. Your hope cannot be built on your knowledge. All of these things, as we will sing in a moment, are sinking sand. Rather, in Christ, through the enabling power of his Holy Spirit, you are enabled to build your hope on the solid rock of your risen, powerful, conquering Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the hope upon which we built. Amen. Pray with me. Dear God, thank you for the solid rock. Thank you for the solid hope. Thank you that in Christ, in Christ we have everything we need. Thank you that we have been told the loving truth that all the other things we place our hope in are but sinking sand. Thank you that through your word and through your spirit, you have communicated gospel truths to your people. But thank you also that the hope of our gospel 
does not dis- does not depend on our faithfulness, does not depend on our obedience. Thank you that it depends on Jesus Christ, but also thank you that through the Spirit we actually can do the things that you have called us to do. Thank you, because that is indeed good news. We pray this in the name of our risen, conquering, mighty, loving Savior, Jesus Christ.